Hi and welcome to Elsie's Mundo uh, Book Club podcast. Good evening, Amy. Hi, Elsa. Thank you. Thank you for accepting my invitation here. So, can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience first? Sure. Uh, my name is Amy. I'm from Myanmar, but currently I'm based in Thailand. Um, Elsa and I met through the um, Women's Book Club in Bangkok. I think around last year, December, yeah. and then we've been in monthly meetings discussing uh, monthly picks of the book. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your enthusiasm as well. I would like to ask first about your childhood. Do you remember your first book that you read? Do you remember that you liked, you know, literature classes or? maybe a teacher who influenced you to become an avid reader? Um, I would say that it's not mainly from the teachers that I got the influence, but mainly from my parents, because they are both quite nerdy. So we have like a lot of like books. And when I was really young, um, I, I'm, I'm the only child. So it's not like I got like, you know, children's book, like a, handed over from my older siblings. So the very first book that I noticed are really big ones that is quite heavy to a child. I think maybe for myself, uh, the first thing that they bought that I remember are like weekly cartoons, journals. Um, yeah, like uh, colorful, quite nice, the same characters every week. So maybe we have our own Burmese version of Garfield or Snoopy. So these journals, and then I remember that my parents bought me books whenever I have interest. So I remember that when I was about two or three years old, I wanted to be a, an astronomer. Right? So they bought me a book, which is about like maybe 200 pages thick, but with a lot of pictures. So that's how I learned to read because they would read together with me. And before, like it was just like pointing at the pictures before I could read the language. So that book I really remember, yeah. That's very sweet. And since when are you an avid reader? So I, I understand that you showed interest in books already from a very early age, right? Yeah, I think pretty young because I don't have any siblings. And then like we used to live in an area that's quite like secluded. So I don't have like exposure to a lot of children except when we visit my cousins in the weekends. So, yeah, I have a lot of books and I think the good thing uh, about my childhood was I have like a weekly allowance and later when I got into primary school, a monthly allowance, but then books are not part of that allowance. So I can still buy the snacks and the sweets, but then I can still buy as many books as I wanted because that's extra that my parents would pay for. Or if I bought, you know, at the school canteen, they would reimburse me. Wow, that's very nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I grew up yeah reading books because yeah, mainly that's my company. Mm -hmm. I see. Do you still buy books? Like um, not so much anymore these days. Like I found a very good library in Bangkok called Nielsen Hay Hayes Library, which has a great collection of English language books. And then you know, since then I've been borrowing a lot like having an actual book in your hands is great. And also I'm recovering from like social media addiction, right? So during the pandemic years, the two years, 2020 and 21, um, I got really stressed and anxious because everything's going on and you can't really meet people. So then I turned to social media and then it become a really 
that happened when I was scrolling through mindlessly. I think, yeah, in some days, um, I would have spent maybe three, four hours easily on Facebook and Instagram. Mm. So I find it really easy for me to read and concentrate on books if I have something as opposed to having a screen. I see. I agree with you. So what you mentioned that you would prefer to have the book in paper. Is there any other reason to that uh, other than the social media that when you when you read it on Kindle, it feels just differently? Um, I think maybe the main difference is when it comes to nonfiction. I would like to underline them and color code them. And then on Kindle, I, I just don't highlight. it's difficult to, you know, flip over yeah. and then do a summary with fiction it's easier on kindle but even then i find that well i don't know there is something about the books that you can go away and then you're not connected to electronics and you're there with just the book because even on kindle if you get bored you can go to amazon and start browsing and buy more <laughs> yeah That's i right. am realizing that buying books and reading books are two entirely different things i agree with that absolutely yes I have two more questions about this Kindle thing. I agree with you. For me, my favorite function on Kindle is that you can also like, you know, citate. And mm-hmm. since I also read in English, sometimes there are words that I don't know, like some very, you know, sophisticated words or even just something that I've never encountered. And then I can just like press and then the dictionary pops up and then it gives me the explanation. And I found myself when I was on the traveling for a long time. And after that, I got a paper book again. I just tried to press the number, the the words on the paper book too. Like, okay, what's the meaning for that? Oh, well, actually I need to look it up or something. So it can go both ways for me. Or when I'm just like sitting above the book and I'm waiting for it to turn the pages by itself. <laughs> after many books uh, having read on uh, Kindle and stuff. Yeah, I had exactly the same experience because when I was living in Myanmar, it's really difficult to buy English language books. So either you get from the library, but the public libraries in Myanmar are not that up to date, or you can buy in bulk when you travel abroad um, and then bring them back. But, you know, if you really need a book immediately or you want to read it, like Kindle is the only way to go. So when I was living in Myanmar for all English language books, like I was reading mainly through Kindle. And I noticed after a while that I did exactly what you did, like opening a hard copy book and like pressing your finger. <laughs> Waiting for something to happen. Book. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where do you buy your books here in Bangkok? Is there any favorite uh, shop that you have? If I want something immediately, I go to Kinokunia. If I can wait, like I would buy uh, online called Book Depository. The good thing about that is that there is no shipping cost. And then like, especially really? for exact no shipping cost anywhere in the world. Wow, I didn't know And that. Um, the great thing about it is like some friends of mine order a book and then it, did, it was delayed because they ordered during you know, the Christmas holidays. But then they thought they lost the book and they complained at the side. And then like the company sent it again. So they ended up with two copies around January. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for the, for this uh, information. Okay. I need to browse now on book depository. 
No, you should go. And also, like, the great thing about it is um, if you are buying classics like Jane Austen or Charles mm -hmm. Dickens, they would have, like, so many versions, right? Um, so I've bought, like, some versions that are pretty good that are, like, $2. Uh, or it can be, to you know, like, $50 if you want a really nice hardcover. Like hardcover, pretty edge. with pictures and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so there are all sorts. <laughs> nice. I recently started to go to the Daza bookstore. Have you heard about that? Yes, I have, but I haven't been. How is it? What I can recommend it to you about it is that when you buy a book and then you return it after six months, well, within six months, and you're reading fast as well, so maybe it's good for you, uh, they will return half of the price that you bought it for, and then you can invest it in another book. So. I just go there sometimes to exchange some books even like you know something i i bought and i started to read it and i didn't really like it so i take it back and then almost for the price of it i can get another one and i can decide if i can get to keep it or not so it, it's very nice i didn't know about it as well for a long time but i started to get addicted to it <laughs> but it also helps you like you know read fast because you want to finish in the given time so that you can get another book for half price, basically. So it's really nice. Mm -hmm. So it's like borrowing it for a fee. I've done that in India. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I was doing a gap year in India. And then you know, I don't have a permanent home. Um, so my idea is like um, there are a lot of like uh, secondhand sellers on the roadside. Yeah. Right? So making a deal with them, like, can I return it to you? And then they were saying that, yeah, like for a fee, so something like that. But I think going forward, I'm going to increasingly use libraries more and more because I also want to switch to um, the lifestyle of minimalist living. So recently I wrote a, read a book, very great, uh, by this Japanese guy, Fumio Sasaki, could buy things so he switched to a minimalist lifestyle and then like very effectively and then i think he has like uh, four white shirts and then three pants that's it you know he has like maybe i think 70 very concrete tips on how to do it how to prep your mind but we're going off the track but um i want to also like minimize my things so like either borrow or buy electronically because then kindle can travel with you that's true you're right What's your favorite genre to read? I like um, biographies or autobiographies, mm -hmm. if the author is honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. That also like drifts us already to like to the field of ghostwriting and then whether the, you know, the author really writes his or her own biography or he or she just hires someone to, you know, here's the topic, please make the book for me or something like that. You know. I don't really mind, like, uh, you know, they having, like, an official partner to write their autobiographies because sometimes, like, they are not just good writers, right, but they have, like, a good story to tell. So I don't mind that as long as the accompanying author could write it in an authentic voice. But sometimes, like, you can tell that they are only talking the good things about themselves oh, and yes. using the opportunity to take a dig at, like, other people in their lives that they're not happy about. And in that case, I'm like, okay, it feels like a waste of time. So I like this kind of books, uh, but I also like uh, short stories mm -hmm. because my attention span is not that great. And then short stories, you know, it, it's to the point and then like you have kind of like a good base of variety. I see. Thank you. Which book did you bring for today? 
For today, I brought this book called How Will You Measure Your Life? It's written by um, this um, professor at Harvard Business School called Clayton Christensen. So I should say that the late professor because he passed away a few years ago. What is this book about and why did you choose it for today? I think this book, maybe, I don't know like how to classify it. If you go to a bookstore, they might probably put it into a self-help genre, but it's not really self-help because I think when I read this, he, he wrote it in the voice, this is very authentic voice. So you really feel like there is another person talking to you very intimately. And also it's a, he's a very decent man. So it's, to me, it's more like the culmination of a life that has been lived very well. I choose this book because it's really like one of my top three favorite books. And then whenever like, I have a moral dilemma, I will go back to it. And then to give me some perspective, even if nothing is going on, I will read it like once every year. And also like when I was back in Myanmar, when I have like, you know, a stable home where I can have a lot of books, I would have like at least five or 10 copies on my shelf. And then I just give it out to people I really like who I think can also benefit from this kind of thing. So I give it out like ice cream or candy. Wait, five or 10 copies? Always. Oh my God. Wow, you're really, really fond of this book. <laughs> I thought it was just always me who, who, who did this. You know, my favorite book is The Garden of the Evening Mist. And mm -hmm. I keep a copy from it here. I bought it to one of my friends as well here that I gave it. And then I also have two copies of it at home, but five to 10. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> well, that's five to nice. 10 new copies to give away and my own copy, which is like underlined and highlighted and also a Kindle copy. For sake's sake, right? Yeah, I can totally it, understand that. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm. When, when did you first encounter with this book? I don't remember. I really don't remember where I... It could be that I'm browsing for something that I'm interested in and then I pick it up. But, you know, a few people have been asking me this question, but to me, it feels like it's become like such a big part of my life for a long time that I really no longer remember. I see. What, what grabbed your attention in it? I think the good thing is he's a business professor, right? So the way that he approached life's difficult questions is also very business-like. So what they do in his class in uh, the Harvard uh, Business School is that um, he would use a theory, business theory, because good, very good robust theories can predict what's going to happen based on the existing circumstances and how you can address it, right? So that's a, every week, that's what he would do with his students. But on the last day of his class, every uh, semester, the last day he will use their lives to predict what is going to happen and then how to, you know, address the issues that they might have. have. Not, he, he was very insistent that, okay, let's not talk about what we hope to happen because we hope to have like fulfilling careers, meaningful relationships, and then lead a life of integrity, but they're not going to happen automatically just because you wish it, you need to make like um, conscious decisions every day 
and then be very intentional about everything you do. But then I think throughout this book also, like he's using various business theories, a lot of business concepts to explain about life. So there are three key questions that he addressed in the book. How can I be sure that I will be successful and happy in my career? So that's the first point. And the second one is how can I be sure that my relationships with my spouse, my children, my extended family and close friends become an enduring source of happiness? And the third one he asks is how can I live a life of integrity and stay out of jail? And it's not a joke, right? Because he went to Harvard Business School himself as a young man. And then he also went to um, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, which is very competitive and intellectually demanding. So one of the things that he recounted was, you know, so they do like a every five year, the alumni gatherings, right? Because it's also like a who's who meeting and then a big draw for fundraising. And what he mentioned was the first fifth year anniversary, everyone came back very successful with like, you know, overachieving spouses, like uh, amazing careers, etc. But you know, 10th anniversary, 15th, 25th, more and more people are looking miserable. Some people went to jail. So this Enron CEO, like Jeff Skilling, it's a classmate of this professor at Harvard. So when they were in the same class, Jeff Skilling is not the guy who he ended up. He's not the merciless corporate shark. And a few of his classmates, either in Oxford or um, Harvard, they one was persecuted, uh, prosecuted for um, insider trading. Another person ran for the office and then kind of like discovered by the media to be having an affair with a woman like among his staff, 20 years his junior, while he was married. So people do end up in jail. But then like what he said was, okay, we don't, we didn't start out this way when we started life. Mm, right? Then yes. how did these really smart people mess up so much. They don't intend to end up like that, but they did. Mm. So let's be intentional. And then he went through the three chapters or like three parts of his book addressing each of the questions using business theories. Wow, that's an interesting concept. So what do you think what went wrong with these people's lives? Many, many things. But I think like one thing that really like struck out was that people don't consider the full cost of the they consider the marginal decisions. So for example, like people justify doing something wrong or immoral as just this once. Mm, yes. So he said that it's easier to be doing things 100% right than 99% right. Because if you're used to kind of like breaking the rules and then you get away, if things are relatively minor, and then you do more and more of that. So one of the examples that he gave for himself was when he was over in Oxford, um, he was part of the university basketball team and they were winning a lot of, you know, um, kind of games in a major championship, university championship. But then one of the very important games, it happens on a Sunday. And then but when he was 16, he's also a very religious man. He made a pact with God that he will not play ball on Sunday because it's like Sabbath for him and his family yes. who are moments. Um, but then like when he told his coach, his coach was like, no, you can't do this. You're going to let your teammates down and it's a major game. We need this game to go to the final game or, you know, very important next step. But then he persisted, but then the pressure came from his peers, right? Like, um, because also like people in the sports team, they have a very strong camaraderie. They were super upset. So he went back to his room to pray because he doesn't want to let 
people down that he cared very much about. But then he gained clarity. Okay, I will not go for it. And he told his decision. Of course, you know, it's a big thing for him and then his teammates, his coach. But then like he afterwards he felt glad because when he looked back, if he had like broke his promise and went to play the game, there are like several thousand Sundays in his life where it would become like kind of like the norm because you've done that before and it's easier. Mm. But it's also the, the same thing for like maybe politicians who have the opportunities to be corrupt or like business executives, which can bend the rules and cheat or lie or steal because no one's watching, but then the stakes always end up higher and higher, right? So the thing is to be like purposeful and to know what you want and then stick to it pretty early on in your life. Oh, wow. That's a pretty impactful message. Mm. Thank you. What's your favorite part in this book? Um, I really like how he uses the business theories and business examples mm -hmm. and then related to the real life. And then it's not even like part A, part B, right? He did it like so seamlessly. So you can have a sense that he genuinely does it in his personal life. Mm, interesting. So it's like basically suggesting that we all need to shift our perspective a little bit and look at our lives as if it was our business right like because like to market ourselves like you know to do marketing or so it's basically what we do when we apply for a new job when we attend some job interviews or apply for something new or a new position in our current company but but if you just look at your whole life with this perspective, it could change your path even. Kind yeah, of. I think, yeah, that's right. Because um, in the final part of the book, Epilogue, right, he was telling, again, in his own voice as a professor, saying that, okay, look, guys, you need to figure out your purpose because that probably is the last chance that you get in your life. Once you get out of business school, you're going to have a fast-paced career and the family would come, kids would come, and then, you know, the pressure at work or the mortgage and other payments. So if you don't figure this out now, you're just going to go along with the flow. And then maybe you would end up when you are like 50 or 60, maybe very successful career-wise, but not fulfill elsewhere. Because one of the instances where he mentioned was that, okay, like, bad things will happen to you. I'm putting it very crudely. He doesn't say it in an exact way, but he was saying that bad things will happen to you. You will lose your job. You know, you might have like a debilitating disease. You might go through a divorce. But then if you go through this alone without anyone beside you, family or friends, it's a, the loneliest place in the world. I agree. Which part? What, what was the message that you took away from it? Like something that, you know, you told me that a lot of things stood out for you from this book. What was the most striking one? That's something like, this is about me. This is exactly about me. And this is how I need to change my life or my perspective or something like that. I think maybe for me, like seeing the three questions that he listed pretty much early in the book, how can you have a good career that's fulfilling? How can you build strong relationships with your family? And how can you lead, lead a life of integrity, right? And then stay out of jail. 
Um, so to see this pretty early on, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And also the end part, like to have a purpose. Of course, you know, you broke down purpose into like three different buckets, like very business-like. Yeah, but the main message is that you need to figure out what's important for you right now because later might be too late. And then like there are also like tips about like how to do it, you know, how to kind of like set out the likeness of what you want, how to implement it, and then how to execute it. I also went to a school, um, which is like a business school, but I studied economics. So, but these languages, you know, about like a full cost or marginal cost, imagine process, plan. So they are all like uh, words that are familiar to me that I can relate to because usually self-help book, if they are very fuzzy and then feel good, I, I don't, I can't relate to it. I need some concreteness. So maybe also like, the, you know, where he's coming from, his own background, that really helped. I see. Yeah, it's. I guess. I guess it. It hits us more. The author is also using his own perspective or his own example throughout mm -hmm. the book, and not only just like, okay, this is the theory, but you know, the practice is something different. Uh, when when he can really mention some examples that are really interesting, or or something that he lived through and and he learned from it, and just wants to share it with his audience, so that um, we can all learn from it without going through it. But you just mentioned before, for example, like anything can happen to us and bad things will happen to us. But if you don't have any friends or family or or a spouse behind you, then it's really it's not even the bad thing that is threatening, but just the loneliness in it, maybe. Does he give any useful suggestions or strategies on how to how to handle relationships correctly or? you know, in a both culturally and personally accepted way? Yeah, I think he uses like so many examples. So it's uh, a bit difficult for me to maybe draw the most relevant example. But what I remember very clearly is that, so he gave the example of like a milkshake, right? Um, so at one US companies, um, the company which produces or sells like milkshake is trying to identify like why people buy it. And then there are so many different answers, but when they really look at the data, the biggest chunk of the milkshakes are sold during the morning rush hours. So people just like came in for through a, like a drive through and then pick up the milkshake, right? And then when they studied a bit more why people, these people are buying a milkshake, because they're not really that hungry yet at 8 a.m., but then they will be hungry maybe one or two hours later. Right, so hunger is like one reason. And the second thing is like the commute. You know, in, in, in America, like people have to drive like a long way. So they want something to accompany them. And donuts or banana, they are like messy, right? Because you really need to use your hands um, and then you need to wipe it away afterwards. So the milkshake is like quite hygienic and quite clean. Uh, you don't need a tissue. But then like for these people, to sell the milkshakes more, you need to make the straw like really thin so that it can last between 30 minutes to one hour, the duration of the, you know, the drive. Otherwise, um, it's going to be going too fast and they're not going to fulfill the purpose. But then they find that the second highest sales is during the evening when the fathers and sons walk in, right? But at that time, like by the evening, what they actually, um, when they have actually gotten the number and did the analysis, parents have to say to their kids, 
throughout the day if you really want your discipline, right? Like, uh, you can't have this, you can't have this, you have to study, no, you can't go for a sleepover. So then, like, dads want to feel better by around 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. because they've been say, saying no the whole day. So around that time, it's just for the fathers to appease the children. Then, like, they don't want, like, a kid to take, like, 30 minutes to one hour drinking the milkshake. They get really impatient in the stores, right? So after, like, 10 or 20 minutes, fathers will be like, okay, son, wrap it up because we need to go and have, have dinner and your mom's going to, you know, get onto us if we're not at home by time. So then they found out that they need to increase the size of the straw so that kids can just slurp it up really quick. Right, then they can put like chocolate chips or whatever that can go through that diameter of the straw. So then like, you know, he was using that example. So if you're doing something, what is the job that you want that product to be done? Like in the morning commute, you are buying or hiring the milkshake to accompany you through this long journey. The longer, the better, right? But in the evening, the job that the people are buying uh, the milkshake for, or like getting them to do, is to feel a little less guilty as a parent, but you don't have so much time. So he was saying that don't assume that, you know, even like the people in the same role want the same thing from you. So if it is a spouse, ask them, how can you show your love? Or how, how they can feel like more cared for, appreciated if you behave in a certain way. Because he was giving the example of, I think, a couple that he knew, right? Like the father, the mother is a stay-at-home mom, full day with the children, and the father came back home and he was cleaning the dishes and cooking the dinner. He thought he did a good job because that's how he showed love. But from the stay-at-home mom's perspective, she wants a conversation with an adult and not deal with, uh, you know, kids all the time because like she's she's been doing that the whole day right so that's where like the friction comes and you were saying that yeah like then you should have asked your wife right because you might be thinking you're doing a lot but if it yeah. doesn't make sense to you so the technical or the very business word that he uses what is the job you're hiring that product or that behavior to do Wow, that's an interesting, very interesting perspective. You just made me want to read this book. <laughs> I really would like to at some yeah, point. I, I'm not even sure, you know, that's the best example, but mm. <laughs> I like milkshakes, right? That, that's why like, I think this example. <laughs> I see. And do you drink it in the morning or in the evening or both? <laughs> morning. But I mean, like, I work from home, um, so I don't need it. But so the job that I hire my milkshake is to make me feel a little less guilty about all the takeout and food vendor orders that I would do later in the day. Um, I, see. <laughs> I see. But that's also like, it's an interesting perspective also from the aspect that, you know, I'm more into fiction and I'm more into like literature language. You already got used to it. Like whenever we meet in the book club meetings, I always say, oh, the story was not really good, but the language is so beautiful. And now it's a little bit, while you are talking about this book, it's a little bit disappointment in my own life or disappointment in the world in a little bit, because everything could be, you know, dissected in our lives into this business mindset. And there is nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that, but it's just like, oh, I just realized that the life is not just, you know, fiction and flowery and like, like in my mind, like in this, um, you know, 
I love being surrounded by artists or I love being, you know, in a very inspirative environment, even if it has no purpose, but that also makes me very vulnerable to be the subject of the consumer of, you know, useless things or some, some not really practical things or, you know, just postpone my own life and or my own personal purposes for for the momentary not really pleasures but like oh there is a new exhibition and let's do that oh there is this and let's do that and not necessarily moving forward my own personal goals if you you know if you want to separate like like our different aspects and perspectives really which is like scary in a way so you know what i mean like i totally don't have the business mind and i just feel like i need to read this book to 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 understand even myself a little bit more like why i do something that i do and then something maybe that i don't even enjoy but i just still do it for the sake of a habit Mm -hmm. but actually is hindering me to achieve my final goal something like that well, he has a word for you. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> Let me hear the statement <laughs> then. <laughs> he mentioned was, you know, the immersion process versus the deliberate process, right? So deliberate process is the plan. So when the companies start out as a startup or like when they plan a new product, they, they have a plan. So that's kind of like the deliberate plan because that's where the very clear map of like how things will go. But then he was saying that the most successful things in business and life tends to happen when people are also open-minded enough to see like what are the emerging opportunities and then you incorporate it. So that's a kind of like emergent process because he was saying, yeah, balance it because things never really like turn out to be the way that you expect or maybe you have a lot of blind spots. So that's the thing that he was talking about, you know, uh, going back to the question about what, what are you hiring that product to do the job for? What is the behavior? So he talks a lot about like questioning the assumptions because you may be wrong or like maybe the group may be wrong. Um, and then like, I think one of the good examples that he gave related to that was that, okay, like if it is a company, right? There's a culture that you want, you can hire or fire people based on the cultural fit, or you can set up the systems in a way that kind of reinforces certain kind of behavior. But he was saying that you can't fire your kid. Right? Um, <laughs> you're stuck with it. And then I like, was saying that, you know, that's why like, especially with the other individuals, especially things like children, I think the phrase that he used was like, what was that? The hot water that softened the carrot will harden the egg. So it's not really like, you know, the, the one approach fits all. You need to keep on trying to see like, what are the things that, you know, that, res- that the children yeah. respond. And he was saying that, yeah, it's kind of like, if you think about it, it's kind of like a long-term process, right? Because as a parent, you need to like make decisions every day to be like kind and loving, but also have integrity, do the right thing. But you will not see if you have really done the good job, maybe until like 20 years down the road. And then, you know, that's where he mentioned that um, it's a kind of like a long-term commitment. Um, instead like of you know responding to his children or playing with them for like 30 minutes a day he could go and run like an econometrics model right or do a regression and then you can see like an immediate return like so much faster you can finish uh, your work day um, you know feeling accomplished that you've done something or maybe a few months down the road you can publish something in an academic journal 
But then like, you know, investing in relationships, making decisions, like good decisions throughout your life, it, it's not going to show immediately. And then we just need to be disciplined about that. Thank you. That's going to be my takeaway from this book as well. <laughs> There's so many takeaways. Um, yeah, I would recommend that everyone read it, although I'm not really sure if many people will like it. I don't know. It's like pretty easy to read. And the story of the book was that I think in 2009 or 2010, he was invited to give like kind of like a graduation speech to the entire student body of Harvard, mm -hmm. right? And then at that time, I think he was kind of like suffering from cancer. So he went and then gave a speech and then people really like it. And then in the audience was one of his students from the business school. And then also I think the editor or editor in chief of Harvard Business Review who were very touched by it. And then they approached him, let's kind of make it into a Harvard Business Review article. So they wrote the article, but then when they came out, the article was so successful that they were thinking, okay, let's turn it into a book. We can make it longer. So that's kind of, you know, it's a speech. Um, actually, it's like many, many classes that he would do um, on the last day of his semesters with all his students and then turn into a speech and turn into a um, magazine article and turn into a book. So the growth of this is also like very um, organic. Mm. Nice. Thank you for sharing. In general, would you consider yourself to read more nonfiction or fiction as well sometimes? Which one do you I, read more often? Well, I've been working full time for like 12, 13 years. So I would say that in the first 10 years, I always read nonfiction most of the time, maybe 90, 95% of the time because oh, wow. it helps me work. And then like during the two pandemic years, I got addicted to social media. So to come back, I found that it's a lot easier with nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And sorry, it's a lot easier with fiction because there's a plot, right? There are characters that you either like or really don't like um, that you could identify to. Um, so that's how I made the comeback right late last year when I got the membership at the Nielsen Hayes Library. But now I feel like my attention span is strong enough for me to be reading um, nonfiction again. So I'm doing maybe these days, maybe 60% or like 70% nonfiction, 30% fiction. Oh, wow. Okay. I see. Interesting. Are you, what are you reading currently? What am I reading currently? Um, I'm reading like this book, um, How Will You Measure Your Life? Because I'm going through like the kind of like a dilemma at life. But then I think I made a decision already with the help of this book. It was really helpful. Um, I'm rereading re like Jane Eyre, mm. which is also one of my favorite books. So there are three books that um, I promised myself that I will reread every year, if not more frequently. So how will you measure your life? Jane Eyre, and there's another book called The Righteous Mind. How we make impulsive or you know like snap decisions and use it to justify later with logic. We have been talking about reading books and you're obviously into it. Have you ever written something that got published or are you writing something that that you are proud of? Or even if 
it's just your journal or you just write it for yourself? I used to write op-eds, but it's in the newspaper um, that mm -hmm. I relevant to my work. I think uh, for myself, like I, read, I write at Instagram because I like taking photos. And there, are, there is also like a word limit in Instagram. I'm not sure whether it's like 300 or 500, but I find that it's very good in disciplining, you know, uh, the way you write. And then it really forces you to go over and edit and then like um, have better grammar or like word choices to really convey what you want to say within that word limit. I, maybe a few years ago, yeah, like I was in the process of translating a book together with a friend of mine. But then I, yeah, I got a little lazy and that project is on hold, but at some point I want to revisit it. Nice. Can we know what book is that? And you are translating it into Burmese, I suppose. No, I'm translating it into English. The book is um, written, I think, many years ago, maybe 80 years ago or like more mm -hmm. about this Burmese civil servant who got a scholarship to study in Oxford. Um, so at that time, Myanmar still was the British colony. So they were sending maybe, you know, a few mm -hmm. men like every year over to Oxford as part of the civil service capacity building. And so he went to Oxford and then studied governance or the government regulations. I don't exactly remember what. It's a, his like personal journal over his one year stay in Oxford and the UK. And it's really like interesting from the cultural perspective because I think he went there in 1920. So yeah, like I have a friend of mine who's British. And she's a diplomat who was, she was assigned to Myanmar for three years. And then I think we met around 2018 or 17 and then like she could read Burmese. I could do some English and then we had the idea. She also went to Oxford. So, you know, she was very excited about this book, right? It was her school. So we were thinking, okay, let's translate this and publish it in 2020 because that's going to be like a hundred year anniversary of this guy being in Oxford. But then I got really lazy and then the pandemic happened. So like, it didn't like happen. And now, you know, like she has finished her rotation in assignment in Myanmar for three years. So now she's back in the UK. But at one point, I really want to do it. It's really interesting because there were not a lot of Burmese people who went to the UK at the time. Mm -hmm. And then he's really funny. Um, he is a very prolific writer in Burmese, uh, a very good writer of short stories. So there's a lot of like humor about like the weather and the food and you know how he's not used to wearing like the shoes that are not uh, slippers basically and you know the, everything about Oxford and it's pretty funny yeah? and he's honest. So yeah. <laughs> Come back to this project, please. And once you finish it, let's have another talk about this book and about its reception. Oh, I, I would love know, to read it. You know, in translating projects, it's very difficult to capture the tone. You can get the content across, mm -hmm. but you also want to get the tone and the personality and also the wit. It's very difficult with witty people because he's witty, right? Sometimes he makes like self-deprecating jokes about him or about his friends, but he's not trying to be offensive. And then you get that in his writing. But if you don't do it properly, um, I don't want to also like, yeah. Yeah, in other languages, it can sound rude or it can sound derogative or yeah, I understand your concern. That's a very interesting uh, approach. Thank you for sharing. Um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I hope you will have time soon to finish it. And you mentioned about the op-eds. In, in what topic or in what cases were there? Are there anywhere 
published that maybe we can read them? I mean, well, only, I mean the audience. Newspapers. <laughs> so you can definitely like Google for that. I, I work in a think tank that focuses on natural resources. So the op-ed that I was writing about um, around that time was, well, the topics that I was working on about like uh, beneficial ownerships, hidden ownerships, and the influence of politically exposed persons in influencing the licensing decisions or business decisions. Um, that's kind of like, you know, broadly fall into the anti-corruption bucket, but it's quite dry. Uh, but at that time, like, it was important for Myanmar and it was at a time when we were trying to change the rules and regulations. So, yeah. <laughs> Wow, I will definitely look into it. Do you have any dreams of publishing anything like even, you know, like um, fiction or nonfiction or, or, you know, your autobiography would be definitely also interesting to read. <laughs> publishing something, no, but I do write a lot because sometimes like, writing also gives you a lot of clarity. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if we're honest with ourselves, right? Because sometimes thing can, things can be fuzzy. It could be about like a personal issue or professional issue or like something you're planning to publish academically. But I find that if you're not clear or if you don't want to be honest, you can usually like talk your way out of it. But if you're like writing down, there is no place to hide. It's either you get it or you don't get it or you're clear or you're not clear. So I do write a lot for clarity, if I'm, especially if I'm confused about something. Was this uh, also one tip from the book? No, not really, no. But then, so, but I will do two things. I will write and also like I will read this book again for like um, kind of like a... Putting you it's kind of like a moral compass, right? Um, so one of the things that I was mentioning earlier, like I had like a difficult personal decision and then I came to the book. So what happened was I was planning to apply for grad school this year and then go next year. So it would mean that throughout this year and until early next year, I would be busy with applications or research about the schools, doing the interviews. But then also like my dad falls sick recently and then to me, like, um, he wants to go to, I mean, he's been to Europe before, but he wants to do like one more tour, like all the big cities. And he couldn't do it anymore because he was afraid that he would be sick without, you know, a family member when he was like traveling. So our thinking uh, between me and my mom is that, okay, we want to take him, but I know that I don't do well in personal relationships if I'm stressed about work or other things. So I could be with him, it's just two, three weeks, but then you know, I would not be my present best self, right? I would be snapping at everyone's stress and then frowning, even if I'm not like in front of the laptop. So I made the decision that, okay, I was just postpone grad school and not apply this year and then apply next year instead so that you know, I can be fully present. Um, I think this book give me a lot of like perspective Right? Because what is important to you at the end of the day, I mean, grad school to me is kind of like not an end in itself, but kind of like a tool to something else. But then personal relationships like family, it's important. So yeah, I, I kind of knew that like I was going to do it. But when I read the book, it gave me like an additional clarity mm -hmm. and then go through the process again. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for being so open-minded about this podcast and accepting the invitation. I really got inspired by your, by your talk now. And, uh, 
I have some reading to do, I guess. <laughs> I would like to I would like to uh, borrow this book from you at some point. No, I think I will send this book to you because I really like give it away very freely to everyone who I can who I think can benefit. I think maybe, you know, it could be helpful to like people of all their ages, right? But especially I think it's really helpful to people in the twenties or the thirties. Because yeah, things are going to get busy and messy later on. <laughs> Yeah, so I you get your purpose right have all the tips and i mean he threw in like a lot of like very uh, prominent companies like um dell versus isus um you know netflix versus like blockbusters and honda in america so it's something that even though it's like full of business language and case studies it's something i think very easy to relate to and i know that you are like an avid reader too so i mean it's it should be very easy for you to get through it. It's not difficult at all. I think it's like less than 200 pages. I see if you like it. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you again. Do you have any more messages to the audience? Um, no, not really. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the reading, I guess. That's the only thing. Yeah, maybe also like if you are reading a lot from the tablets, try it with the <laughs> hard copy books because it's really like, yeah, nothing like it. And the weather is good for it right now in Bangkok, right? Like it's like yes. rains and just like coffee or tea and a book day. Um, yeah, enjoy the reading. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us for this month as well and follow Ersasis Mundo. Stay tuned for more book reviews. Bye!